Welcome to episode nine of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper Jepson, and I'm glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud in this podcast, and then I'll be riffing a bit on what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter from my book. And I'll remind you, just like I reminded the readers of my book, you don't necessarily have to listen to the episodes in order. Just follow your interest and start there. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure where this podcast will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me. Here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at shechanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 9, Owning What's Mine, and the quote at the beginning by Katherine Hepburn. Life is to be lived. If you have to support yourself, you had bloody well find some way that that it is going to be interesting, and you don't do that by sitting around. One summer, while I was when I was training for a triathlon, I took a ride up the coast of Maine to meet my friend Mish for a swimming workout. At the time, she lived in Rockland, and I knew she'd take me to one of those luscious spring-fed lakes that surround that area. Like me, she'd done a bunch of sprint triathlons. She had kicked my ass handily on the bike, but I returned the favor to her during the run. But the swim? I suspected we were pretty evenly matched at that event, rather neck and neck. We plunged into the water, and Mish suggested we do a swim workout based on a drill she had recently learned in her master's swim group. It was basically an aquatic form of tag, having one swimmer follow behind the others, which meant swimming in bubbles, lots and lots of whitewater bubbles, a good simulation of what a triathlon feels like, until the swimmer in the rear tags the front swimmer's toes. She set off. I followed, hot in pursuit. And then I followed some more. Bubbles, all bubbles, and not one toe to be found anywhere. After some time, she appeared quite suddenly in the midst of all the bubbles, having stopped swimming to check on me. So, Leo, the object is to catch me and touch my toes, she said, thinking I had somehow misinterpreted the essential rules of tag. Mish, what the fuck do you think I've been trying to do for the last 200 meters? We both burst out laughing, conceding her victory as a superior swimmer. And then I proceeded to ask her to teach me everything she was doing that I wasn't. Game on, sister. Even if I never touch your toes, I will fight to the death to reach one. It's so delicious to openly celebrate my competitive spirit with another woman, staring her down with a challenging look and inviting and an invitation to best me if she can. I hadn't always been proud of my competitive spirit, though. Athletics are one thing. But having seen what that looks like in the corporate world among women, I harbored a fair degree of shame around that for years. It's the part of being a woman many of us don't like to acknowledge, let alone take ownership of. 
that dark underbelly of competition that can quickly sour from having your back to stabbing your back. My experience in trying to engage women in this topic is akin to starting a conversation about toe fungus, genital warts, or incontinence. It's just awful and awkward, and everybody winces. Some women will often rear up and say their experience has been entirely different, and they have no idea why we would want to talk about this, which may be true, but serves only to further shame and invalidate those of us for whom it deeply resonates. I used to think I was alone in my love of competition. Until I sat down next to a woman during a leadership retreat, we'd gotten on the topic, and she blurted out in frustration, competition gets a bad rap with women. I remember breathing a sigh of relief when I heard this, no longer feeling the need to safeguard or qualify my competitive nature. In fact, I remember proudly claiming that piece of myself and how liberating it was to feel like I was no longer hiding under this, this shroud, pretending. It's like there are all these weird, unspoken rules that apply to women in competition. It's exhausting to keep trap of, track, track of them all, let alone follow them. You can win, but don't make a big deal about it because you wouldn't want anyone else to feel badly. You can enjoy it, but don't admit it, or else people will think you're a power-hungry bitch. You can engage in it, but play nice with everyone. Don't stand out too much. Don't gloat. Don't boast. Be sure to give everyone credit. Say you are lucky. That always works. Don't shine too brightly. Point out your flaws and all the other ways in which you're deficient to make others feel better. Make excuses. Lie if you have to. Whatever you do, don't accept the compliment outright. People might think you're arrogant and conceited. The good news is, more and more women I know, including me, are tired of that shit and are putting down the shame, apologies, and explanations for who we are. I once did an all-women's triathlon that was quite popular and much heralded as a good-feeling experience for a good cause. As part of the race registration process, which began with a fast and furious 12 a.m. scramble to see if you could even get in, women were invited to raise money to fight breast cancer. The fundraising, in fact, was set up as a competition, and it was pretty cutthroat with winning individuals and teams changing daily, if not hourly, on the race's website. I raised some money, which felt great, considering I was doing the race in the honor of my sister-in-law, Grace, who had passed away from stage four breast cancer just the year before. Having never done this triathlon before, I asked women what it was like. What I heard time and time again was, oh, it's really just about the fundraising. We're all just out there having some fun. Yeah, okay, but something didn't smell right, and I'd smelled that stench before. The festering rot of passive-aggressive competition. Thinking it was just my imagination, I told myself I was crazy and to get into the spirit of the event. But I knew I'd made a dreadful mistake when I stood on the starting line on the morning of the race. That year, I had moved up a wave, having gone from the 34 to 39 age group to the 40 to 44 age group. I thought because I was the spring chicken in the group, I might stand a better chance of competing. You know where this is going, right? Turns out that that age group is the most competitive group of all the ages. The women in that group are total badasses, having typically spent more dedicated time training, more races under their belts, and the wisdom that comes with age. This was not their first rodeo, and I 
and now I was in their mix, gulping. I was in the front row, woefully over my head, when we finally marched up and over the rocks, went down through the chutes, and arrived at the beach. I typically got in the front row, usually comprised of 15 to 20 women, figuring I would just swim like a bat out of hell to keep others from swimming over me. Not a winning strategy, but it was familiar, so I stuck to it. I realized I had inadvertently positioned myself as one of three women in the front, with a pile of lean and fierce women revving their engines behind me. I think I let out a little whimper. And had I not pooped my brains out before the race, I'm sh I surely would have had an accident then. We plunged into the water, and it took only a minute for something to go wrong. Breathing for my life, I felt a punch as one woman's solitaire ring came crashing down right into my front teeth while she swam, for her life too, no doubt. Like a lost lemming, I popped up to take quick inventory, counting my teeth with my tongue. All there, just a chip and was knocked under by a wave of women roaring up from behind me. Needless to say, this event was decidedly not all about the fundraising. This was the fiercest and fastest field of competitors I had faced in four years of doing triathlons. Part of me was exhilarated by it and revved, reveled in the caliber of athletes in this race, while the other part of me got really pissed off about it. Why had no one told me? Why was no one talking openly about this? Was it really that disdainful to call ourselves competitive women? Did we need to mask the hardcore behind the do-good, feel-good veneer? Why not just call it what it was, a bunch of badass, strong, fearless women who were all doing their damnedest to win, and by the way, raise a good chunk of cash in the process? I felt like I was, something was wrong with me, like I was broken or somehow defective because I loved to compete. Are competition and humility mutually exclusive, or can we own both with pride? I'm using athletics as an example because for most of my life, I've been an athlete, so I've had a fair amount of exposure in this arena, but it's where I've seen this dynamic play out the, the clearest, perhaps because it's competition in the most traditional sense. It's been sanctioned by society thanks to Title IX. But where I have also felt this hokey-pokey with competition is in meetings, the boardrooms, interviewing waiting rooms, even dressing rooms. The reality is that women's relationship with competition are riddled with shame, self-consciousness, and resentment, tempered with excuses, qualifiers, or plain old denial. Rarely is competition celebrated openly among women, and I want it to be. That, to me, is one of the juiciest human experiences I know, Testing my mettle against a worthy adversary with a grin on my face and a laser-sharp focus in my eye. Thankfully, I had Katherine Hepburn as my inspiration growing up, not so much from an athlete's point of view, but as a model of a woman who was an overall formidable contender, often called haughty and arrogant, even promiscuous. Here was a tall woman who strode into a man's world wearing trousers, she was outspoken, opinionated, fiery, independent, and audacious. She answered to no one but herself and made it a point to start every morning with a jump in the cold Atlantic Ocean. I love this woman. I see myself in her, which somehow has greased the skids for my own self-acceptance. The truth is, I have always resonated with public figures and fictional characters who go against the grain 
who stand alone and are willing to challenge convention, even if they stand out and become lightning rods for negative attention. Cheeky, trailblazing, defiant, obstinate, full of pluck and moxie, irreverent, bold, maverick, pot-stirrer, rabble-rouser, loose cannon, wild card, free agent. These are all words that make me salivate and breathless with desire because this is me. These are my people. This is our language. I think it started with Pippi Longstocking. I remember how hard my mom worked to get my braids to stick out straight just like Pippi's one Halloween. Mine flopped. But again, I recognized myself in Pippi. She was loud, questioned everything, barked orders at the posse of neighborhood kids who gravitated toward her, climbed up trees as well as her house, and was filled to overflowing with a sense of adventure. Her spirit was larger than life, and she seemed to call the shots in her own world. She even had a horse sleep in her house. What's not to love about that? I saw her again a few years ago when the movie Up came out. The film began with the main character as a little boy finding himself all wide-eyed and in awe of this little girl, Ellie, who was both fearsome and fearless as she commanded her imaginary ship in an abandoned house. She had a book that cataloged the adventures she wanted to have and the places she wanted to see. I loved her immediately. But perhaps my favorite illustration of a woman who wholeheartedly embodies her masculine energy is Katniss Everdeen, the protagonist in the Hunger Games series, a reluctant revolutionary leader of a long overdue rebellion. Katniss is at first blush unassuming and often underestimated as a result. When we then we learn she's fierce with a bow and is able to shoot through shoot her target through the eye so as not to damage any of the meat, enabling her to provide for her mother and her little sister in times when others are starving. She states things plainly and speaks her truth in a dystopian society that puts on airs and would prefer to sugarcoat the harsh realities embedded in that fictional world. What I love about Katniss is the Katniss example is that she is positioned as the leader of the revolution, sometimes the face of it, but ultimately as the heart of it. She is the revolution. That's perhaps why she's so popular with my clients too. These are women who are digging into themselves and pulling out that energy that will fuel them in rising up, heading a charge, leading a change, leaving a soul-sucking job, starting their own business, calling bullshit on the way it is, and writing their own new roles to live by. When I ask them to identify the women, alive, dead, or fictional, who inspire them, I hear Lindsey Vaughn, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, Tina Fey, Ellen DeGeneres, Oprah Winfrey, Catwoman, Amelia Earhart, and Gloria Steinem. All formidable, all fierce contenders, all revolutionaries, all strong, all opinionated, all working to shape the world they want to live in, all taking a stand for something they believe in, all women doing what they do really well because they found a way to leverage their masculine energy energy in ways that serve them and ultimately all of us. I'm so grateful they exist. Because of them, I, as well as my clients, don't feel so alone crazy or ashamed, but I want more. So that's chapter nine of my book entitled 
owning what's mine. And like I said in that chapter, it's not an easy conversation to start among a group of women. And I would invite you to test that out. And, and next time you're gathered as a group of women, ask people, so what's, what's competition like with women? And, and open it up and see uh, what your own experience is, is of this. Um, it's so, I'm so keenly aware of this particular thing as I watch, um, I, as I watch uh, the, uh, the first woman candidate um, run for office of the United States and how um, she is raked over the, cool, the coals um, a lot of times by women for, for one reason or for another. And it reminds me of that quote that I hate and that is true for me a lot simultaneously. And that's that, that um, it's not really a quote, but it's more of a phrase of that men will go after their weakest and women will go after their strongest. Have you heard that one before? It's often really true. It's, it's often while um, women will be called bossy um, when they're leading and being ambitious and being commanding. Um, their mean-spirited words will come out to describe what will often be um, a word of praise with when used with a man. So it's we have I believe we have a lot of work to do here, and the ch- I've t- tried to take this conversation on head on a number of times, and good luck because it's really really hard. My um, my. Uh, workaround, if you will, of that is just to tell, like I wrote in my book, lots and lots and lots of stories so that more and more women don't feel so alone. Um, so I, um, and the phrase that I'll often use is that um, I reference the stench of passive aggressive competition. The other phrase that I'll often use is that is that competition sometimes, a lot of times, unfortunately, can come out sideways in women, meaning when it's not, when it doesn't come out directly and honestly and openly, it comes out sideways and it takes people by surprise and they, um, it, it doesn't have the same effect if it were to come out direct and be owned directly. And so in my own, in my own experience, this is where I have, I've used that phrase earlier, but where I have participated in my own shame. So I don't need other people to do it for me. I'll do it just fine myself in shaming my own competition. Writing this book, digging down and getting these stories and reframing them in my own light of who I am today has really helped me to heal that shame and to own who I am um, without the disclaimers, with pride, actually. I did a book reading last week, and a woman asked me, she said, a lot of women writers are writing about shame. What's your take on it? And I don't, I referenced it some in my book, but it was after writing my book that I realized the degree to which I had healed a lot of shame. It was almost like by owning it and putting it black and white and on on the page and for others to read, I had come out of hiding, which was a way of making myself visible, which um, really helped me to heal a lot of shame I was feeling. And 
what I was also amazed by, as I told this woman last week, was that it's kind of a bottomless pit of shame. There's a, When I think I got some of it, there's more of it. And in an earlier podcast, I, I suggested if you want to find the trail of where you're feeling ashamed and where you're participating in your own shame, listen for how often you use the word to with yourself, T-O-O. I'm too loud, I'm too aggressive, I'm too ambitious, I'm too bossy, I'm too overbearing is a word I used to use with myself. Um, That will point you to probably your greatest strength, which is showing up in all its colors, um, which is might be where you're playing small, which is a form of shaming yourself. So get curious there. The other thing that I shared at this book reading was that I was amazed, amazed that when I had tackled a lot of my own shame and healed it and owned myself more fully and more publicly, um, I was not as judgmental of other women. And so I was shocked. I didn't see this coming. I was really shocked by the correlation between shame and judgment. So that to the degree you can diminish your own shame, it will automatically have you be in less judgmental of others, which is a form of disconnect. So I know I'm not alone in this. I know a lot of women say I feel so judgmental. So instead of berating yourself for being judgmental, dig around that and see if you can get to the shame that might be triggering that. Um, The other thought I'd have around this is is language and semantics around it. So a lot of times, um, a lot of times judgment in my experience and when I work with other women is is part and parcel with jealousy. So um, if you find yourself jealous of another woman, you might also find you get very judgmental with her. And so notice where you're, notice who, who makes you jealous and notice where you feel jealousy and see if you can recognize that that jealousy, which, you know, has a bad rap also. It's not a fun word we like to talk about a lot. Jealousy is a form of longing. Jealousy is an expression, actually, of a desire. And I'll give you an example of this. There was a woman, a friend of mine, actually, and she travels extensively. And I used to be like, God, you know, this must be nice to travel so much. She must have a trust fund, and she gets to do all that. I don't get to travel, and she takes her family for months at a time and gets to do this, and blah, 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 blah. And here I was, like, making up all the shit about this that, that I didn't know to be true, and it wasn't even relevant. When I dug below it, I wanted to travel, and I hadn't really given voice to that. Nor did I even have a valid passport, which was my first step in getting out of that hole. Um, But I, once I could own, oh, I have a burning desire to travel more, and I haven't in years, and my soul is hungry to travel. Once I could own that and name that as particular and specific, the jealousy morphed into a form, she was my inspiration, she was my muse. So I'd offer you that as sort of a way of playing with semantics to sort of get underneath and behind things like jealousy and shame and, and judgment. Um, and so the, the final thing that I'll leave you with is um, 
embedded in this whole chapter is an invitation to not deny this side of ourselves. This is, don't make, don't mistake me in, in hearing this. Um, I love this competitive side of myself. It has gotten me where I am. I'm so grateful to this part of myself. So um, the invitation is not to deny it, but to actually leverage it more. And the first part of leveraging it is to own it and talk about it you going first. So a lot of times women will wait for other women to bring up the topic. My invitation to you, if any of this resonates with you, is you go first. You start talking about how you love a good game of Parcheesi or Monopoly and you love winning, especially in a society where we're teaching our kids that everybody's a winner and we don't talk about losing in healthy constructs. And then it does come out sideways on the soccer sidelines or in the GPA um, stuff in school. So see if you can um, initiate healthy conversations and pride around your own uh, competitive spirit inside you. So thanks for listening to this episode. And here's to living unscripted, having access to more of who we are, and letting our bright lights shine freely. Go ahead, be luminous.